So continuing with uh, Lumpur Cha's advice to this group of uh, Western monastics who'd come to see him at um, uh, Wat Gornok, the, the little um, monastery in the village, 1979. This was. When the factor of rapture arises in meditation, there's a happiness of mind that cannot be described. But one who has reached this will know it. Happiness arises, rapture, one-pointedness, discursiveness, and investigation. These five things come together at a single point. They have five distinct characteristics, but they're unified, and they're all experienced together. It's like different fruits in a basket. Although they are different, we see them together in one place. The factors of jhana, meditative, meditative absorption, come together and are experienced in the mind. To describe them is impossible. What is the joy like? How does bliss happen? What is discursiveness like? But if they are developed and experienced, they fill the mind and you will know. At this point, practice is something different. Your meditation becomes different and even strange. It's necessary to have mindfulness and clear comprehension. Don't get confused about what's going on. It's only a mental experience, a mind moment, the nature of mind displaying its potential. Don't have any doubt about these things that occur in practice. If it goes up into the air or is submerged under the ground, if it seems to be dying, never mind. Just look directly at what your state of mind is and abide with that awareness. That's all. You'll have your foundation right there. With mindfulness and clear comprehension, knowing yourself in all four postures of standing, walking, sitting and lying down, you're not grasping at whatever appears in your field of experience. When you're constantly aware of all that occurs, whether there is attraction or aversion, happiness or displeasure, doubt or certainty, there's investigating and knowing, getting the essence of practice and experiencing the fruit. Don't go fixating on the way that things appear to be. Recognize whatever appears to the mind as merely so, merely a moment of sensation and awareness, something impermanent that arises and passes away. There's nothing more than that. There is no self or other, no essence, nothing that should be grasped. So this is one of the occasions when Puchar does talk about the the factors of jhana. Uh, he's arranged them in a, a slightly different order than classically. That Usually they are listed as vitaka and vichara, um, sustained and applied uh, thought, and then piti, rapture, uh, sukha, content, uh, uh, say happiness or contentment, and ekagata, one-pointedness. So those are the five uh, aspects of, of jhana, and then they are said to, they're all, they're all there at first, and then they, they, uh, gradually they, they fall away as deeper states of absorption are, are realized, as it said, and um, so that dis, uh, sustained and applied thought fall away after the first jhana, and then rapture falls away after the second jhana, and then third jhana there is uh, contentment and one-pointedness, and fourth jhana there's just one-pointedness, uh, as it said. It's usually how it's described in the, in the teachings. So uh, also, I'm talking once again talking about not being uh, caught up or confused by different states of mind or visions or you know, lights or sounds or, or feelings that might occur in uh, the state of meditation. Uh, don't get confused about what's going on. It's only a mental experience, a mind moment. 
the nature of mind displaying its potential. And that, uh, uh, just uh, I think at the end of the, the reading yesterday, we were talking about keeping it simple. That's uh, whether there's uh, in, intense feelings, uh, kind of physical discomfort or, or, or kind of a, uh, energy in the body, or there's, uh, there's other uh, mental experiences like you know, lights or, or images or whatever that appear. That uh, principle of keeping it simple one moment at a time, in, the, in this moment there is this, it's just this much, just one, uh, one feeling, one perception, one, uh, one breath. And that, um, that, that's a, a general, uh, as a general rule, that's a very helpful principle to have in mind with respect to, uh, to meditation. And I remember many years ago here at, uh, in the, one of the winter retreats at, uh, at Amravati in the early days, um, one of the monks saying to Ajahn Sumedha, you know, this Anapanasati, uh, I, I just can't, I just can't do it. You know, it's just so it's so difficult. Um, and then talking about it as if you're you're aiming to be concentrated on the breath uh, for like the whole period of an hour without your mind wandering anywhere uh, this way and that, and the mind setting up this. I've got to do this for an hour. I've got to do this for an extended period of time. Otherwise, I'm not quite quote unquote doing. Anapanasati. And uh, so uh, Lumpur Sumedha very uh, memorably responded to him, can you be mindful of one inhalation? Yes, I can do that. Can you be mindful of one exhalation? Yes, I can do that. Okay, that's it. That's Anapanasati. Just, uh, that's all you need to do. Don't think about doing it for five minutes, ten minutes, or an hour. Just one breath at a time, one moment at a time. And to be... Um, uh, so sustaining the focus in that way, and it's uh, letting go of the past, letting go of the future, and then uh, giving the heart to the, this present moment. That's the um, uh, the sort of reliable way to um, to to relate to the practice, rather than thinking in too too broad or too extensive terms. And then uh, later on, he said, that "Don't go fixating on the way things appear to be." Recognize whatever appears to the mind as merely so. And the, the Thai expression for, for merely so, a uh, uh, Cha would use quite often, kenan. It's just that. It's only that. It's, it's no more than that. It's, it's only this. It's merely this. And so that, was, that appears very, very regularly in his uh, Dhamma teachings. Whatever appears to the mind is merely so. It's just this. Merely a moment of sensation and awareness. Something impermanent that arises and passes away. There's no self, no other, no essence, nothing that should be grasped. Any thoughts, questions, clarifications? Okay. When body and mind are seen thus with wisdom, we're aware of all the old habits and patterns. Seeing the impermanence of mind and body, seeing the impermanence of the totality of all feelings of happiness and suffering, of love and hate, we realize there is only so much to them. They are merely what they are. And the mind turns. Turns away, becomes weary of it all, becomes weary of mind and body, these things that appear to pass away and are unreliable. Wherever we may be, we see this. When the mind becomes weary, its only concern will be to find a way out. We no longer want to live as before because we see the imperfections and liabilities of the worldly way. We see the liability of this life that we've been born into. With this perspective, wherever we go, we will see the facts of the impermanent, unsatisfactory and selfless nature of phenomena. And there will be nothing we wish to get or grasp hold of. 
Sitting beneath a tree, we hear the teaching of the Buddha. Sitting atop a mountain, we hear the teaching of the Buddha. Sitting on a plane, P-L-A-I-N, <laughs> we, uh, we hear the teaching of the Buddha. We will see this world much more clearly. We'll see body and mind more clearly. The realms of form and formlessness we'll see more clearly. They become clearer in the light of impermanence, in the light of the unsatisfactory nature of things, in the light of the absence of a self. Whenever we humans hold on to things as being permanent and real, suffering comes immediately. But when we realize the truth of body and mind, suffering is not born. Without attachment, there's no way for suffering to take hold. In all situations, wisdom will arise. Even seeing a tree, wisdom arises through this contemplation. Seeing plants in the fields, seeing insects, wisdom arises. They all end up at the same point to become dharma, the point of not being certain. This is the truth. They are things that are not permanent. In what way are they permanent? The only permanence or certainty is that, having arisen, they are transitory and unreliable. They cannot change into something that will not undergo transformation and then cease to be. That's all. If you truly realize this, you've traveled your path to the end. Though when speaking about weariness, um, it's, uh, again, the, the English language doesn't quite have a perfect word to translate Sangvega, um, uh, it's both. A, uh, it means world weariness, a sense of uh, losing your taste um, for the the glamour of the world, the appeal, the excitement, the the compelling quality. So Sangvega is a kind of world weariness, but it's not. It's not a um, an aversion or an, a, a kind of a, an agitated state, um, but uh, it's uh, like the something has no longer has its fascination no longer has its glamour so sangvega also it part of that is it also has a, a sense it also embodies a sense of urgency which is because <laughs> you think being weary wouldn't make you urgent so <laughs> the english language doesn't really have a a word that can say yes you're you're not interested in that but it does make you interested in the alternative um and so that there, it takes a little bit of explanation to get a sense of what Sangvega is. So like the, the Buddhist holy places in India are known as the Sangvega Niyasatan, the places that arouse urgency. So Sangvega is world weariness, but it's also that kind of fire to the heart that says, I've got to do something about this, or this is, <laughs> this is, a, this is not a joke, this is, this is, this is real, I'm, I'm, uh, I need to act on this, I need to... to work to to free the heart from these these influences so uh, at, um, and the liability uh, I was talking about this the other day um, you have the the gratification the asada and then the liability the downside is adinava and those two are a, a pair so the gratification or the, the pull the appeal of the sense world is something to be irritated by or excited by or afraid of that that's all in the asada, the gratification or the, the kind of impact and the, the mind's taking hold of the experiential field uh, and the, the kind of charge that comes from that engagement. It, it often asada, gratification again, is also not quite the right word because you can be gratified by getting angry. <laughs> you know, so gratification we might think of as having your favorite food or listening to your favorite music or going to see your favorite 
landscape or a beautiful sunset. But there can be gratification in venting your spleen, you know, getting angry, getting upset, or, you know, or voicing your opinions. There can be a sort of endorphin release, like, yes, <laughs> I really uh, said my piece. So that it's uh, that gratification isn't necessarily to do with something that's obviously pleasant, but it's that which is, say, uh, affirming that, that, that ties of the, the, the heart to the experiential world. The liability, so asada is the gratification, and then adinava is the liability, it's the downside or the what goes with that gratification, or yes, having tied your heart to this or that or the other, what comes with it, like you know, the bill or the um, uh, the if you're attached to your faculties of seeing and hearing and and so forth, when um, they start to go, then the, the liability, the downside is oh. <laughs> I was taking for granted my ability to remember or to think or to see clearly or to hear. And the liability was that these things are not, not reliable and they were always in a state of change. When he says that uh, suffering comes immediately, uh, again, dukkha can be quite subtle. So I would say uh, whenever we humans hold on to things as being permanent and real, suffering comes immediately. I would say... To, to sort of fill that out, fill that out a little bit, that the causes for suffering come immediately. <laughs> it might be that because you're swept up in something that's exciting or interesting or, or compelling, that it's not apparent that it's that there is dukkha there. But in that buying into something, then the causes for dukkha are are um, uh, uh, right there immediately. But the the actual ripening of, of that is something unpleasant or painful or, or obstructive, burdensome, stressful, might not come until a bit later. So that, that, you know, that's why we, we get drawn into things that are apparently pleasant or gratifying and then we only find out later that uh, there's a price to pay. So any questions, thoughts? Okay. According to the Buddhist way, if you think, I'm better than others, this is not correct. I am worse than others, is still not correct. I am equal to others, is also not correct, because there is really no such thing as I. Uprooting the conceit that says I am, you become the knower of the world, knowing clearly according to the truth. If your vision is true, thus then the mind is true, with complete knowledge of the actual way of things. The causes are cut off. With no causes, nothing is born. So the practice must proceed like that. The foundations one needs to develop when starting out are first, being an honest person, one who is straightforward. Second, having fear of wrongdoing and being ashamed of bad actions. And third, having a humble mind, being one of few wishes and easily contented. Those of few wishes who are restrained in speech and actions will know themselves and be free of distraction. These elements are the foundation. When they are complete, there will only be virtue, meditative stability and wisdom, sila, samadhi and panya, in the mind. These will fill the mind and there will be nothing else there. Such a mind will live wholly in morality, meditation and wisdom. So uh, again, this is uh, um, the 
the Buddhist understanding of conceit is quite is different. The the use of the word is different than the English. Um, when we use the word to be conceited, uh, if someone is conceited, then that uh, in in the English usage it means the person's got an inflated view of themselves. They think they're special or superior or they're they're definitely better better than other people. Uh, the Buddhist um, use of the word conceit, um, mana, is broader than that. So as as Lumpur points out here, and this is in the Itiwutaka, these these are threefold kinds of uh, conceit. If uh, if you are better, if you think I'm better than others, or I'm worse than others, or even I'm the same as others, those are all kinds of conceit. And in the uh, another of the the scriptures called the Neti Pakarana, they actually spell it out even to even more detail. They put they call it the ninefold uh, matrix of conceit. So if you are better than everyone and you think you're you're better, if you're better than everyone and you think you're equal, if you're better than everyone and you think you're inferior. That's the first three kinds of conceit. If you're equal, but you think you're better, if you're equal and you think you're equal, uh, and if you're equal and you think you're worse, that's the next three kinds of conceit. And the last three, predictably, are if you're worse, if you're the worst than everyone, and you think you're the best, or you think you're equal, or you think you're the worst, that's the last three kinds of conceit. So this is the, the ninefold analysis of conceit. So any kind of I, whether it's technically accurate, like you, 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 know, you think you're equal and you are equal, or you think you're the best and you are the best, um, or whether it's inaccurate, you, know, you think you're the best and you're actually uh, equal or the worst. Uh, it's all, these are all different kinds of conceit. Mana is the Pali word uh, for that. And so that, uh, as he says, uprooting the conceit that says I am, it's called the asmi mana. I, asmi is the word for, for I am. Asmi mana is one of the the kind of uh, most subtle or profound kinds of um, attachment. It's it it's the eighth of the ten fetters, so it's only completely let go of at arahantship. So uh, if your vision uh, uprooting the conceit that says I am, you become the knower of the world, knowing clearly according to the truth. If your vision is true, thus then the mind is true, with complete knowledge of the actual way of things. The causes are cut off. With no causes, nothing is born. So then the mind is not creating the causes for, for any more dukkha or attachment identification in the, in the present. So. so those three, the foundations one needs to develop, as he, he lists here. First one being an honest person, so that's sila, and that uh, basic uh, honesty in terms of action and speech. And then the second one, uh, hiriotapa, this is the uh, moral sensitivity, the, feel, uh, the recognition of what is wholesome, what's unwholesome, and the, um, uh, the hiriotopa, which is the, the guardian of the heart. And third, having a humble mind, being one of few wishes and easily contented. So contentment is santuti. Um, it sounds a bit more Italian than Pali, but <laughs> santuti uh, is, a, uh, is contentment. And uh, as we have in the uh, Metta Sutta, contented and easily satisfied, Santusa Kocha, Subarocha. Um, so, and then having a fewness of wishes, this is um, this encouraging simplicity, one who's uh, easily satisfied, contented and easily satisfied. That makes life uh, much more, um, say, uh, spacious. And uh, if you haven't got to have a lot of kit, a lot of things around you to make you feel comfortable, and you're more adaptable to different circumstances, different 
groups of people, different climates, then uh, you are um, uh, much more able to be practically at ease in the world. So, fewness of wishes and, and contented and humble. And so then, uh, as he says, the, uh, if, uh, if with these elements as the foundation, when they're complete, if there is that sila and, and hiriyotapa and contentment, there'll only be sila, samadhi and panya, virtue, meditative stability and wisdom in the mind. They'll fill the mind, so there'll be nothing else there. Oh, well, uh, of course, there'll also be perceptions and sensations and, and thoughts, you know, different um, different experiences arise because of what we see here, smell, taste and touch. But basically the mind ground, I would say, is what he means here, that these will fill the mind, that that, that the, those qualities of sila, samadhi and panya will be informing um, the experience of each moment. They pro- provide a context, a, uh, a background and, an, a, and a, a, f- a quality of attitude and steadiness and um, understanding that is brought to each moment. Questions, thoughts? It's a quiet evening. Okay. So we practitioners should not be heedless. These words are not often heard, yet this admonition applies to everything. Even when something is good, when you seem to be in the right, don't be heedless. Don't be heedless in regard to what is wrong, to what is good, or to happiness, or to suffering. The Buddha taught us not to be heedless about anything. Why? Because all these things are uncertain. Relate to your own mind in this way as well. If it becomes tranquil, don't grasp that state. Just let it be. It's a natural reaction to be gladdened by it. But just be aware of what's happening. Whether there are good or evil states, be aware of them. A teacher can explain the methods for training the mind, but it's only you who can do it for yourself. You can know everything in your own mind. Who else can know it for you? If you rely on what is correct like this, you can reach the point of ease no matter where you are or what you're doing. But this means really practicing. Efforts that are not genuine or sincere will not help. Genuine practice is not something tiring because it's done by way of mind. If you have mindful awareness of yourself, you know what's going on. You know what's right and and what's wrong, and you know the way to practice. There isn't really a lot that you need. Relating to your friends in Dharma, there are two things to consider, what are called in the vernacular the example and the essence. It's taught to not take the example, rather to take the essence. So before I go on to that, he he gives an extended account of his time with Ajahn Tongrat. Um, I feel this is uh, um, talking about a, a, about teaching. A teacher can explain the methods for training the mind, but it's only you who can do it for yourself. So I've mentioned this a few times before, and I think one of the, uh, but I, I do feel it's important. And actually, I, I gave an online talk yesterday afternoon in Thailand, and uh, one of the questions came up about um, relationship to, to teachers and how, whether to believe what a teacher is saying and so on. Um, and so that uh, I feel Lumpur Chao is an incredibly good example of, of, of making it clear that, that we all need to teach ourselves, that even though someone's up in the, in the seat doing all the talking, that 
it's the purpose of that is not to think oh all of the answers are in the seat you know <laughs> or that making statements uh ex cathedra statements like this is the way it is and cathedra is is means chair so from the chair ex cathedra um statements so this is how it is if you're in a role of teaching and you're putting the message across that I'm the one who understands and you guys don't understand and you're lucky to get all the right information from me. I would say that's totally wrong <laughs> in a very unhelpful way to teach and uh, not, not skillful. It might feed the ego of the teacher or give a sense of um, superiority. <laughs> might feed the superiority conceit, but it's not very helpful uh, in terms of, of spiritual practice, I would say. And one of the, the most uh, significant things about Lumpur Cha was that he kept reminding everyone that it's up to you to teach yourselves, that the, the words that come from an Ajahn are there to help you to teach yourself. That, uh, and as he says here, um, it's only you who can do it for yourself. Uh, you can know everything in your own mind. Who else can know it for you? So that, I feel, is really important, that the, the role of someone in the position of teaching is to help people to teach themselves. And that's, so you're a kind of a catalyst um, and that that is empowering the the students, empowering the people who are endeavouring to learn and not putting them into a position of um, submissiveness or, or feeling, oh, I don't understand everything, this other person's got all the answers, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm clueless, I'm just a trainee, I'm just a, um, an, a, a novice, I'm just a, um, a lay person. But uh, to that... Uh, to help people to be empowered to study and to you know, to use their own mind, to trust their own mind, and to teach themselves. I feel this is a very um, significant and um, important attitude to sustain in relationship to teaching. So then to go on to Ajahn Tongrat. Ajahn Tongrat, a master of the last generation, was a case in point. People who weren't smart could not get his dharma because they would only look at his example. His speech wasn't restrained. This was his example. He would make requests of lay people all the time, and when he scolded someone in the assembly, he would really lay into them. His example was like this, but in his essence, there was nothing, really nothing. It was merely speaking, and his speech was all Dharma. In truth, whatever he said was aimed at Dharma, but people didn't have any idea what he was doing. His intention was to give dharma, not to give harm, and no harm was done. No loss was incurred by anyone. But in his comings and goings, his words and actions, he didn't seem to be restrained. His example was like this. Some monks tried to follow it, and the result was only their own undoing. When Ajahn Tongrat and his monks would go for alms, there was one house where people were kind of stingy. They didn't like to give food. But of course, almost everyone in the village would at least offer a little rice. So they had to come up with some excuse, such as they didn't know that the monks were coming, and so on. So when Ajahn Tongrat would get to their house, he would shout in a booming voice, Hey, is the rice cooked yet? And wait in front of their house, which is definitely not the way you do it in terms of arms around. That's kind of not seriously not kosher. But, uh, so... Um, so when Ajahn Tongrat would get to the house, hey, is the rice cooked yet? And wait in front of the house. Then the people would have no choice but to come out and put some rice in the monks' arms bowls. 
The other monks would see Ajahn Tongrat do this every day, and later on one old fellow started doing it too. Wherever he went on arms round, he would shout at every house, Hey, is the rice cooked yet? This eventually came to Ajahn Tongrat's attention. One day in the assembly, he singled out this monk and scolded him for soliciting donations of food. What do you mean, Ajahn? asked the old guy in all innocence. People are telling me that when you go out for arms, you're shouting out, Hey, is the rice cooked yet? This is completely inappropriate for a bhikkhu. <laughs> so even though he was doing that himself, but one particular house, uh, he was scolding the other monk for, for doing that. Of course, the old monk thought he was doing the right thing, following his teacher's example, but he didn't know the reason that Ajahn Tongara displayed such behavior, and he didn't have the same kind of mind of detachment. The Ajahn prodded the stingy lay people out of the wish for them to develop generous hearts, not merely for the sake of filling his stomach. So that uh, is that, that kind of copying the example, um, or sort of mimicking the example of others and, and not kind of getting, getting the point. There's a, a, um, a famous incident when Devadatta was trying to cause a, a division in the community and a, had um, inspired a, a large number of, of young monks and they'd all gone off to, to stay with him. He was critical of the Buddha, that the Buddha wasn't ascetic enough and that um, they should have uh, more rigorous standards. And uh, so he'd taken off with a, a large group of, of, uh, of monks with him. And then um, uh, the other members of the Sangha considered what to do and then the, the Buddha eventually said to Sariputra and Moggallana, okay, well... Um, uh, it's a suitable time for you to go and uh, and visit Devadatta and the, the other uh, monks gathered in that place and um, see if you can have a, an effect uh, and uh, uh, help them to be, say, freed from Devadatta's influence. And so as the story goes, then uh, uh, Devadatta was giving a Dhamma talk and then uh, he, he mimicked the Buddha by saying, my back is paining me, I'm going to go and lie down and... Um, and so you, uh, and then invited, um, I think he invited Sariputta to carry on giving a talk. So he sort of, just like the the Buddha did quite often, uh, when he had, as he had back pain when he was when he was quite old, he would say to Venerable Sariputra or Venerable Ananda or Mahakachana or one of the elders, "My back is paining me. I'm going to go and stretch it. The assembly is still awake. Please carry on giving a dhamma talk." And so um, Devadatta was quite chuffed that Sariputra and Moggallana had come along. Thought, oh my goodness, these important monks have come along too. And um, so then he said, my back is paining me, I'm going to go and take a rest. Sariputra, would you please carry on giving a teaching? Um, and so then he went off, and then Sariputra did indeed inspire the, <laughs> the assembly. <laughs> and while um, Devadatta was sleeping unmindfully, then Sariputra and Moggallana left with all of the 500 monks. And... Uh, Maybe they left a, a few stayed behind, but uh, uh, they um, they all took off, and then um, Devadatta was, as they say, spitting blood, and uh, his irritation at the um, at the his his new disciples had been taken away by the wretched uh, Sariputra Moggallana, and then when the Buddha was told about this, he said it's like a baby elephant, when uh, uh, elephants go to to pick. Um, Root like lotus roots and and, and lotus plants in a pond. That the the, um, the adult will will uh, will wrap, uh, wrap their trunk around some of the the the, um, the grasses or the the lotuses and and pull them up and then it'll shake all the dirt and stones out of the roots and then when when the the plants are properly cleaned 
then then they'll pop them into their mouth and eat them. The the baby elephants they they don't know what they're they're why they're doing that, so they kind of try to copy the the adults and they sort of pick them up and they give them a bit of a shake. They've still got uh, soil and rocks and stuff around the roots of the plants, and so then when they eat those, then they get they get ill and get uncomfortable and they get indigestion. And the Buddha said, Devadatta is like a little baby elephant who got indigestion from eating dirt and rocks and mimicking his elders. So that, um, that's one of those, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a, uh, a, the, one of the verses of the Dhammapada has that whole background story and it's uh, found in the, in, in the uh, suttas uh, and it's sort of frequently quoted as a, you know, be careful to not just mimicking the example or, or, or copying the behavior. Uh, so also Ajahn Tongrat was, um, as Ajahn Chah said, he was quite a, an eccentric character and um, the uh, and very very forthright. So apparently, when uh, he was living with uh, Ajahn Man, and they were up in the the, the hill country around Chiang Mai area. And uh, they were on arms round, and uh, this wild goat uh, was was standing on the pathway in front of them. And of course, yeah, Achan Mun was at the front of the line of monks because he was the most senior. And this this large uh, aggressive goat started pawing the ground and and uh, was threatening to to charge. And then Ajahn Tongrat, who was sort of further back in the line, he just came striding up to the front, ran up to the goat and kicked it. <laughs> so the, the goat was kind of so startled at this 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 uh, monk kind of attacking it, uh, then scooted off into the undergrowth and left them alone. And apparently Ajahn Mun said, Tongrat, he's the only one who's a true disciple. You know, none of you, you, the rest of you, just would have stood there and let the goat knock me over. But uh, you know, Tongrat, he's a he's a true faithful disciple. So there was many Ajahn Tongrat stories. So. Another one was um, <coughs> how uh, the um, uh, in in Ajahn Mun's monasteries uh, that there was a very very high standard of, of restraint and, and quietness and and uh, and uh, w- um, one day they um, it was after the the meal time and the Ajahn had gone back to his kuti. His kuti was quite close to where the little sala was where they would have the meal. And um, uh, in the sala, then Ajahn Tongrat was there with a few other monks, and he was talking very loudly, and he was sort of knocking a kettle against the pillar, and uh, and sort of rattling the spittoons, and kind of, and all the other, you know, the monks were like, be quiet, be quiet, you're making a heck of a noise, and and you know the Ajahn's going to get upset, and and he didn't he didn't slow down, he kept making a, a all this kind of noise and talking loudly, and uh, and making a, a, a to do. And after about you know, fifteen twenty minutes of this, then he, then he he uh, uh, he took off. And then in that evening, apparently, then Venerable uh, Man gathered the uh, the assembly and then gave a, 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 a sort of an ear scorching dhamma talk about quietness and restraint and mindfulness. And and apparently, Ajahn Tongrat was sitting there with a, a big smile on his face and. And, uh, they th- and so, one the, according to the story, one of the monks then said to him, "Wow, I bet you were really that was must have been terrible for you." He said, "No, it was great, great." But you know, he was really torturing you as a you know badly behaved monk. He said, "Well, we hadn't had a dumb talk for about five or six days, so I thought it was about time to get the agile motivated. So I just kind of made a bit of noise so that he would give us a teaching. So, <laughs> so he was a very, uh, very uh, unusual." Um, 
monkey. And they also, I, th I think I mentioned, he had uh, uh, some psychic powers as well. When Ajahn Chah first showed up, yeah, he knew who he was and mentioned his, oh, Chah, you know, Tan Chah, you've arrived. Also, there was a, um, again, speaking of arms round, another famous Ajahn Tongrat incident was when um, uh, the, the standard for arms round is that uh, you, that you uh, you can go to different villages and uh, and then uh, when you when all of the sangha members have come back to the monastery, then you uh, you keep some rice in your bowl, like you make a ball of sticky rice, and all the rest of the food that might have been given that that's shared communally and it's all d divided up in, a, in an equal and fair way, and um, seemingly one uh, one monk who was on the um, a particular arms round, they were given some fish, and he was particularly f fond of this particular kind of fish. And so, when they got back to the monastery, then he he kept some rice and, and relinquished all the rest of his food. But he couldn't uh, he couldn't resist keeping this fish, and so he he actually sort of put it inside the ball of sticky rice, so that the the um, uh, the, the, the kind of it was sort of hidden in there. Because what when you, what happens is you you sit with your bowl and the ball of sticky rice in the middle of it. And then three or four monks would come down along the the line and spoon the food into your your bowls. You don't you don't have a kind of self service mode as we do here. Back in those days, that was how it was done. And so um, uh, they were they were all gathered there before before the meal time and before the food was going to be passed out. And then apparently Ajahn uh, Ajahn Tongrat. Um, uh, just got up from his seat, walked down the line, walked up, walked up to this this monk. He's about you know, fifth or sixth down the line. Kind of uh, took the lid off his bowl yeah, and then opened up the bowl of sticky rice. Oh my goodness! Says the this one. This one must have been still alive. It was hiding. Yeah. <laughs> this one. This one is hiding in your bowl. That's a, oh well, it's uh, it's dead now. But uh, maybe maybe it was alive and it and, it's, and it thought it to hide itself inside the sticky rice. They went back to sit down. Of course, the monk kind of bowed and got up and didn't eat anything that day. <laughs> so the, uh, he was a very eccentric teacher. And when he died, uh, apparently um, he sent out a message. Uh, his, his home monastery is, is not, not too far from Ubon. Ajahn Utain is now the abbot of that, of that place. And uh, so he realized his life was coming to an end, so he sent a message out to a local villagers saying, if you want to hear a Dhamma talk, then please you know, come in, there's going to be a special talk tonight. And he got up onto the Dhamma seat and started uh, speaking, and um, and then uh, as the talk proceeded, he kind of was leaning against one of the side of the, of the seat and then leaning a bit more, and finally lying down on his side on the Dhamma seat, he said, okay, that's enough, and then he died. <laughs> So he uh, he di literally died on the dhamma seat, uh, and uh, so it was a very memorable talk for the locals. So, any questions? Thoughts? Yes. About the um, the one he, he calling out about the, the rice cooking yet finished mm -hmm. cooking rice might be like mokalana. You remember that uh, there was one uh, wealthy guy who was very stingy in that town of the Buddha. And then this Mokalana uh, went to. Uh, oh yeah, he is. He loved this dessert, and it had to be fried and all elaborate. And so he asked his wife to cook, but because he was worried that someone will come and, and, and know about this, so they're going into the 
highest top of the, the tower to make this. And then Mokalanapri flew over to the, the window. And then these, uh, and then he gave this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Then it becoming sticky and it never end, something like that. I remember vaguely. And, and when I went to India and I passed that town, that's a, that's a, that's a, the, the dessert name still came. I'm not familiar with that story. It rings a very, very faint bell, but I'm, I, I'm, not, no, I'm not familiar with that story. And then finally, to, to just yeah, uh, get that guy, that wealthy guy, to be, you know, less stingy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes? Yeah, a, a little bit later in the, in the book, um, uh, there's a mention of... Um, Stingy people getting headaches if they if they don't give give to the monastics um, and um, I, I just wondered if that was kind of quite a, a widely held belief in Thailand. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't heard of that before. I mean, not, I, well, I think if you're stingy, generally you're going to be creating a sense of tension, and uh, I would imagine. That not just in terms of relationship to the monastic sangha, but uh, if you're if you're selfish and stingy, then that uh, is going to bring a certain uptightness into your mentality. And physical tension is often a cause of headaches. But I haven't heard that before. So. I was just wondering when um, the eccentric uh, Ajahn died. Um, well, Ajahn Chah was, was with him when uh, he was about seven or eight, nine Vasa. And, uh, and so he must have been uh, alive up until about 1950. Um, so it was probably sometime in the 50s when he gave the final Dhamma talk and then departed. But uh, that era was... Ajahn Chah was um, born in 1918 and became a bhikkhu in 1938 and then um, started going off wandering at about yeah, 1943, 44. But uh, Th uh, Thailand was uh, very, very impoverished during in the Second World War and, and shortly after. Um, so uh, uh, I'm not sure how easy it would have been to go wandering in those days. Um, but anyway, so it would be somewhere between 45 and 1950-ish, and I would imagine, I would guess. Okay, so... The different types of beings who come to the Dharma may be classified by the ease or difficulty with which they practice and gain realization. Previous accumulation of merit and the development of parami, the spiritual perfections that prepare one for enlightenment, isn't really something that we can have a competition uh, in, in the way that we measure bodily strength and abilities, like, like you know, races or um, 
spelling bees and such like. Uh, some say, I have good intentions, I want to develop, but I just can't do it. Well, you have to try to do it, push it along. And now, then he enumerates these four modes uh, that I talked about the other day, the four modes of practice. For some people, practice is difficult. There are obstructions and troubles in everything they, that they do, and realization comes ever so slowly. It means they've created only a small store of parami in the past. So now, in the present, they have to create a lot of it. They can't just give up and turn back. If a poor person thinks, okay, I'm poor, that's how it is, I needn't try to work and change things, then they're really in trouble. They've got to think, I'm poor, so I should work hard, or at least work like the others do. It's the same here. If we practice a lot, work hard, and develop the path energetically, we can progress too. Then, second type. Then there are those for whom practice is difficult, but realization comes comes fast. So that's dukkha patipada kip abhinya. So quick uh, uh, insight or quick understanding. Then there are those for whom practice is difficult, but realization comes really fast. Their practice may even bring them close to death. They'll have to struggle and fight, but they can realize the truth quickly. If they experience a lot of pain, it doesn't matter. The pain will soon be gone. For the third type of person, practice is easy, sukha but knowledge comes with difficulty. They don't have much struggle or obstruction, and they can keep on practicing smoothly, but it takes a long time. Maybe not until the time of death will they see. The fourth group, practice is pleasant and easy. Their path is one of happiness, and realization comes easily, comes quickly. There are people like this too. Whatever the case, whether results come fast or slow, whether we seem to have a lot of ability or not very much, making efforts to practice virtue is always worthwhile. Whatever we do will not be lost. Virtue accomplished will undo non-virtue. That which is correct will remove that which is wrong. At the present moment, the fruit may not have come, but later on it will. This is karma. When one karma is giving its result, another karma cannot. We are receiving the results of past actions now, not yet the results of the actions we do in the present. But nothing is lost. When one karma is finished, another will follow. So we do our practice now, and there there will be benefit when the time is right. So this is encouraging patience, (laughs) patient endurance, patience and persistence, uh, which are, are again, very uh, significant uh, qualities, aditana, resolution, uh, kanti paramita, the patient endurance, uh, the, uh, steadily working away. And also the, the, the model that he talks about here, um, often I feel that's a, a skillful way to relate to uh, our life, that it's a sort of two-part process of one of which is that we are uh, receiving the results of everything that's gone before, of our own actions and the way the world is in this moment, that's the task, is to be open and to learn from everything that's come together in the world um, uh, uh, and has formed. You know, it's this way, in this moment. That's what we learn from. So we're receiving the results of past action, past events. Uh, that's felt and known here. And in this moment, the way in which we, we work with um, the present experience, then that plants seeds for uh, how things will take shape in the future. So that that so the twofold 
aspect of practice is one is receiving the effects of past causes and then planting causes for beneficial effects in the near or the distant future. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. So, I mean, question. Sort of, is, uh, is it an, um, an appropriate question to ask a master? Uh, are you an Arahant? Yeah, that's, that is an inappropriate question. <laughs> but uh, I would definitely say that I have not reached that that point yet. But yeah, it's 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 uh, uh, yeah, it's generally not. Uh, our monastic rule is that uh, even if uh, even if you have reached a level of accomplishment like that with respect to stream entry or um, being once returned, non returned arahant, or or, um, or levels uh, levels of jhana and such like, even if they're true, it's still an offence to, to 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 talk about it. On a, on a level of killing a, an animal, deliberately killing an animal, or deliberately telling a lie, so even if it, even if it's true, you shouldn't. Uh, as a monastic, you shouldn't make those kind of statements to lay people. So that's why it is a bit of an inappropriate question. But an interesting thing, and Nupal Sumedha was talking about this the other day, um, was that there really isn't any such thing as an enlightened person. Is interesting to contemplate, because if the mind is re- is genuinely enlightened, then it knows that from the inside it, it knows that it isn't a person and it, uh, there never was a person. <laughs> the, the the personal the aspects of personhood arise and pass away, and they're known by the mind. The mi- the mind is awake and, and is enlightened, and it knows the personal qualities of the body and thoughts and perceptions and feelings arising and passing away. But for, uh, from the outside, it looks like there's an enlightened person. But from the inside, then the mind knows there isn't a person here. So there isn't really any such thing as an enlightened person. Just can be labelled conveniently that way from the outside. But from the inside, there isn't a person who's enlightened. And uh, if I remember correctly, Lumpur, Lumpur Sumedha was talking about that somewhat in the the uh, Dhamma teaching on Maga Puja. So that's a Useful thought to ponder for the evening. That's uh, the. Uh, that's all I've prepared for today. There was so few questions. We'll leave it there for this time.